This is Tanakhcast. Welcome to episode 9, Genesis chapters 28 through 31. So, chapter 27 concludes with Rivka priming Yitzchak about Yaakov's trip to Haran. So rather than fleeing the wrath of Esav, in Yitzchak's mind, Yaakov is urgently relocating to Haran to marry a non-Canaanite. Which prompts Esav, having seen Yitzchak give Yaakov a farewell blessing before leaving, to go out and marry Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael. Ishmael, if you recall, is Yitzchak's half-brother, which would make Mahalat Esav's half-first cousin. Esav in chapter 26 had married two Hittite women, which the Torah recounts, quote, were a bitterness of spirit to Yitzchak and Rivka. This move, perhaps, is an attempt to make up for that spiteful move. So, chapter 28 finds Yaakov setting out for Haran. On the road, he stops for the night, takes a stone for a pillow, and falls asleep. The text tells us, and he dreamt of a ladder with its top in the heavens and messengers of God going up and down on it. God speaks to Yaakov, identifying himself before reiterating his blessing to Avraham about the land belonging to his descendants. Yaakov wakes up and turns his pillow into a standing stone, and after anointing it with oil, calls the place Bet El, or House of God. Chapter 29 begins with Yaakov arriving at a well. Some herders are hanging about, awaiting for the arrival of all, of all the herds, before rolling away the stone. They chat as they wait, and then Rachel arrives. Yaakov is smitten. He single-handedly rolls away the stone, waters Rachel's father's Lavan's flocks, then kisses Rachel and, quote, lifted up his voice and wept. After establishing their family connection, which one would think he would do before the smooching, Rachel races back home to Lavan, who turns around, races back to the well, embraces and kisses Yaakov before ushering Yaakov back to his home, where Yaakov recounts recent events. Yaakov also offers to work for Lavan, and after some negotiation, a deal is struck. Yaakov will work for Lavan for seven years in exchange for Rachel, the younger daughter that he had met before. And within a verse of sealing the deal, seven years just fly by as if they were days, quote, because of his love for, for her. And so, when the day comes and Yaakov and Rachel are to be wed, Lavan throws a big party. Alcohol is served. And in the morning, when Yaakov awakes, the Torah recounts, quote, Here she was, Leah. Yaakov, somewhat bemused, confronts his father-in-law. Lavan cites local tradition and strikes another deal. Finish out the bridal week with Leah and then marry Rachel, but work for another seven years. Yaakov agrees. And as with the previous generation of matriarchs, fertility issues dominate the household. This time it is intentional. God makes Leah fertile because, quote, Adonai saw that Leah was hated, leaving Rachel barren. So begins more begetting, with Leah giving birth to Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, and thus permanently consolidating her status in the household as mother of the firstborn to Yaakov. Rachel, despite all protests, remains barren. So she provides Bilha, her handmaiden, quote, so that she may give birth upon my knees, so that I too may be built up with sons through her. Bilha gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Leah, not to be outdone, provides her maid Zilpah to Yaakov, who gives birth to Gad and Asher. After a rigmarole around a peck of love apples, Leah conceives again a fifth son named Issachar, a sixth son, Zvulun, and a daughter named Dina. Finally, Rachel conceives, a son named Yosef. 
Once Yosef is born, Yaakov decides he must return to Canaan in fulfillment of God's promise to possess the land. But this move involves a rather complicated disentanglement between Yaakov and his father-in-law's household and property. In the end, another deal is struck, whereby sheep and goats will be divided based on their hair color. Yaakov would pass on the more common black or dark brown goats, but keep the white or spotted with white goats. As for the sheep, which were nearly always white, Yaakov would take the black or spotted ones. After some rather odd Lamarckian interventions, Yaakov's flocks grow, while Lavan's do not. And chapter 31 begins with some bad feeling from Lavan's sons about this. And as the situation continues to deteriorate, Yaakov, Leah, and Rachel conclude with some strong words from God in a dream that it is time to go. They wait for Lavan to go off for the sheep shearing before executing their plan. Rachel steals Lavan's trafim before the household, packed in, ready to, ready to go, breaks south toward Gilad. Meanwhile, God appears to Lavan in a dream and warns him to play nice with Yaakov, and when Lavan catches up with Yaakov, their encounter is colored by God's warning. Lavan chastises Yaakov for sneaking away, quote, For I would have sent you off with joy and with song, with drum and with lyre, and you did not even allow me to kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. But there is another agenda here. Lavan wants his trafim back. The text talks around what these trafim precisely are. The daughters speak of them as a surety for their inheritance. Lavan later refers to them as his gods. Lavan conducts a thorough and somewhat humiliating search of Yaakov's possessions to no avail. Rachel is actually sitting on them, these trafim, and she claims she can't stand up because, quote, the manner of women is upon me. And so, when the trafim are not found, Lavan and Yaakov cut a covenant. Yaakov erects another standing stone. Lavan calls it Yegar Sahaduta in his native Aramaic, and Yaakov calls it Gal-Ed in ancient Hebrew. The spot, otherwise known as Mitzpeh, will be the border between them. Lavan will not go south of it, and Yaakov will never traverse north. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. This week, I want to talk about a corollary to a central concept in biblical theology. known as midah keneged midah. This principle is, is, is almost like the bread, butter, and za'atar of, of rabbinic era literature and medieval commentaries in the Tanakh, some of which we will very briefly examine as well. As I had mentioned in episode 5, the Tanakh subscribes to the theological premise that God punishes the wrongdoer. A corollary to this notion is the concept of midah keneged midah, which is often translated as an eye for an eye, or more colloquially, measure for measure. That is, when God punishes the wrongdoer, God does so in a balanced, measured fashion. The punishment, in other words, fits the crime. This balance serves as a remedy to the very human tendency of responding in kind and then some, a phenomenon otherwise known as perpetuating the cycle of violence a pastime very familiar to folks in the Middle East. So, thus far, Yaakov scams his brother out of his birthright, and then, with his mother's collusion, perpetrates a rather elaborate fraud on his father and his brother again. But once the jig is up, Yaakov opts to 
But if the Torah is consistent in anything, Yaakov will get his eventually, if not at the hands of Esav, then from someone else, perhaps in his uncle's house in a series of ever-escalating scams, each one upping its predecessor. Which begs the question, was Yaakov getting what he deserved from God, and if so, could we hold Lavan accountable for his part in the payback? I do not want to keep banging on this drum, but it hardly seems fair to blame individuals for being God's sock puppets. So let's agree that either we cut the villains some slack because God wants them to be villains, or we rightfully hold them accountable for their villainy and marvel at how their villainy so perfectly syncs with our protagonist's need to overcome obstacles and ultimately prevail. But first, another word about Midah Keneged Midah. Mahatma Gandhi supposedly quipped, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. This would be true if we were to take this principle literally, which Jewish tradition never did. The Babylonian Talmud in Bava Kama, page 83b to 84a, codifies this concept and similar expressions as mandating monetary compensation in tort cases. In other words, if my negligence results in you losing an eye, my eye is not forfeit, but I must compensate you accordingly. Also, in so compensating you, our dispute is resolved. I have harmed you, and I have been harmed in return. No relative of mine can now come forward and claim this injury and retaliate against your relative, which would prompt your relative to find a relative of mine to harm. Later, when we explore Numbers 35, in, I don't know, a year or two, we'll talk more about the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger and agent of the vendetta. Vendetta, the Italian word for the, for the Latin vindicta, or vengeance, was the order of the day in cases of unintentional manslaughter. The Torah sets up a process to deal with such cases involving a city of refuge, armed guards, and the health of the high priest. But like I said, we'll deal with that much, much later. In our case, the case of Midah Keneged Midah, there is only one turn of this cycle, and it ends with God, who responds to a biblical figure in kind. So here we are in Haran with Yaakov Heelsneak, who is about to get his. Very often, commentators, be they rabbinic or medieval, enlighten our understanding of the text. They're quick to define a term or clarify a complicated or convoluted phrase. They provide answers to questions we weren't even aware of that were hidden in the text. But their attitude toward the text was substantially different than the modern or postmodern reader. They were not interested in realism or historical accuracy. They wanted to derive lessons that transcend the generations. They wanted to portray heroic figures in the text in an unflinchingly positive light, with some notable exceptions to humanize them. They also regard less-than-heroic figures as villains. The most famous commentator on the Torah, Rashi, or Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, that's, you see the first letter in each word, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rashi, lived in France in the 11th century and brought to bear a keen eye and ear to the understanding of not only Torah, but Mishnah and Talmud. He established a whole hermeneutical tradition, but he, like his predecessors, the 1st century Egyptian Philo of Alexandria or the 9th century Babylonian sage Rabbi Sa'ajagaon, or his contemporary Sephardic Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra, also peddled a lot of uh, mices. 
you know, stories that had nothing seemingly to do with what happened in the text. More often, the commentator's understanding and representation of biblical figures and events obscured the original text or supplanted it altogether in the consciousness of Tanakh readers across the generations. Take the famous story of Avraham and his father Terach's idol shop. This story appears in Genesis Rabbah, chapter 38. Genesis Rabbah is an anthology of Midrash, or rabbinic lore, from the 4th through 6th centuries, providing an homiletical interpretation of the book of Genesis. And though I am sorely tempted to skip over this very famous story so as not to perpetuate the Midrash's obscuring, whitewashing, or supplanting of the Tanakh, it's such a good story. So, here it goes. Terach, it seems, was an idol maker. He once went away and left Avraham to mind the store. A man walked in looking to buy an idol. Avraham said, Sure, but how old are you? Fifty years old, the man said. Avraham replied, You're a fifty-year-old man and you want to worship an, a day-old statue? The man, ashamed, turned and walked out. Soon after, a woman walked into the store and wanted to make an offering to the idols. Avraham politely led her and then waited for her to leave before taking a stick and smashing all the idols except for one, the largest one. When Terach returned, he was Shocked. Avraham was ready with a reply. A woman came in to make an offering to the idols. The idols began to argue about which one should eat the offering first. The largest idol settled the argument by taking a stick and smashing all the other ones to pieces. Terach replied that what Avraham said was impossible. They were only statues. Whereupon Avraham responded by wondering aloud why people worship them if that was the case. Now this is usually where the storyteller ends, but the story actually continues. Terach took Avraham to Nimrod. If you recall from the genealogy lists of episode 4, Nimrod is the king of Babylon. Nimrod proclaims to little Avraham that if idols don't do the trick, we should worship fire. Avraham responded that water puts out fire. So Nimrod declared that they should worship water. Avraham responded that the clouds hold water. So Nimrod declares they should worship clouds. Avraham responded that wind pushes clouds. So Nimrod declared that they should worship wind. Avraham responded that people stand up to wind. Now Nimrod, weary of the little nudnik Avraham, declared that Avraham should be cast into the furnace. If Avraham is correct and God is real, God will save him, which is what happens. When Avraham's brother Haran sees what happened and says that he too believes in God, the God of Abraham, Nimrod has Nudnik Sr. thrown into the fire as well. Haran is not saved by God. So what inspired this flight of Midrashic fancy? Why did Rabbi Chia tell this fabulous tale in Genesis Rabbah? Because the verse in Genesis 11.28 said, quote, And Haran died in the presence of his father Terach in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. This tale would account for the curious phrase, quote, In the presence of his father. Got it? By the by, the Quran also discusses this story too. 
just saying. But where we get into trouble, and I mean real trouble, is when folks regard the Midrash not just as a pleasant filler, but as a replacement for what actually happened in the Tanakh itself. And when those folks, those that have a pretty good working knowledge of the Tanakh, clash with folks who have been snacking on a solid diet of Midrash, well... During a debate in the Israeli Knesset on December 14, 1991, after an earlier speaker alluded to King David's conquest and biblically sanctioned occupation of foreign peoples, then Foreign Minister Shimon Peres replied, quote, Not everything that King David did on the ground, on the roofs, is acceptable to a Jew or something I like. Haredi, ultra-Orthodox members of the Knesset, went bonkers, screamed, shut up, and, quote, you will not give out grades to King David. One ultra-Orthodox Knesset member was so distraught he had to be taken to the infirmary for treatment of high blood pressure. Though the ultra-Orthodox members of Knesset were surely familiar with David's seduction of the married Bathsheba and the quick dispatch of her husband to the front to to be killed, they were probably better acquainted with the countless commentaries that followed, rehabilitating, quote, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he was referred to in the no-confidence motion they filed almost immediately. Though the Tanakh itself states, quote, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, the ultra-Orthodox Knesset members clung to the line in Tractate Shabbat, page 56a, that stated, quote, whomever says David sinned is mistaken. Look, if you don't believe that this actually happened, I'll put up a link to the story from the New York Times. So, when Yaakov defrauds Esav, Esav, according to the commentaries, had it coming because he was a loose idol worshiper even in utero. As Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in another work of commentary stated, succinctly, it is a well-known rule that Esav hates Yaakov. Sounds more to me like the commentators hate Esav. So when Lavan cheats Yaakov every which way but Sunday, one would expect the commentators to take a strip off Lavan as well. But the commentators actually blunt Lavan's culpability by implicating Rachel in the deception. Here's another story from the Babylonian Talmud. Lavan knew how beautiful Rachel was and how desirable a cat she was, so when Yaakov sent presents to Rachel, Lavan would take the gifts and give them to Leah, and Rachel would remain silent. When Yaakov asked Rachel to marry him, she said, Yes, but, quote, my father is a deceiver, and you will not be able to out-scheme him. Yaakov asks her what Lavan's play will be, and she says that Lavan will not marry off Rachel before Leah. So Yaakov says... And then Yaakov gives Rachel a set of hand signals so that he'd be able to recognize her on their wedding night. But when Leah is standing under the canopy, under the chuppah, Rachel realizes that her sister will surely be shamed when Yaakov uncovers the ruse. So she, like a turncoat catcher in baseball, gives Leah all the signs. Then again, the Passover Haggadah reviles Lavan even more than Pharaoh. Lee, I turn it over to you. Come and learn what Laban the Aramean sought to do our father Yaakov. For Pharaoh issued his edict against only the males, but Laban sought to uproot all. As it is said, an Aramean would have destroyed my father, and he went down to Egypt and he became there a nation, great, mighty and populous. So when we think of action and reaction in the text of crime and punishment, it seems to all work out in the wash. 
even though Esav is, according to the commentators, a despicable character and well worthy of getting knocked down many, many pegs. The man who manipulates and cheats him, Yaakov, gets his when his father-in-law, Lavan, manipulates and cheats him, who then also gets his when his son-in-law manipulates and cheats him by monkeying with the breeding of lambs and goats. This is probably one of the best examples of Midah Kenegh and Midah we have seen as of yet. However, in the end, everyone walks away wealthier. Although, only Yaakov has the limp. But we'll talk more about that in the next episode. As always, you can leave a comment, a question, or a comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 10 on Genesis chapters 32 through 35. I'll come back now, here.